When you think of Miss America, what do you think of? I think a lot of people have a really, really incorrect assumption and perception of who Miss America is and who are the women that are so driven to compete to become her. I will tell you this, I am a graduate of the Miss America system. I won my local title, Miss University of Alabama, Birmingham, and competed to be Miss Alabama. It wasn't the perfect fit for me, and I wasn't successful in my quest to become Miss Alabama, but along the way, I received so much coaching and training about how to present myself more effectively, how to communicate more effectively, how to handle interview questions, how to perform on stage, how to create genuine human connection, even when we are miles apart, or even when you're in the audience and I'm up on stage. The lessons that I learned as a contestant within the Miss Alabama system, I would not trade for the world. Back when I was competing, I actually was campaigning. So as a part of the Miss America program, you have to have a platform was what we called it back then. And now they call it a social impact initiative. So you have the opportunity to pick a cause that you are passionate about, that you want to share with the world. I chose hands-on science in the classroom because I realized that Most people cannot learn science from a textbook. You cannot learn how to be a good engineer or you cannot learn how to build and construct. You cannot learn chemistry without performing the act of chemistry. And so I wanted young children to continue experimentation because one of the things that we see within the education system You take a three-year-old or a five-year-old and you say, what do you see and how can you explain it? They have tons of ideas for what they see and how we can explain it. And they can also make connections between, ooh, well, I saw this happen before. And then you can start creating those scientific understanding of like bubbles in one place is either the same or different than bubbles in another place. How is this water that is coming from an ice cube similar or different to water that is a product of condensation. Children at very young ages start to make these understandings. Unfortunately, we don't foster that in our education system. And by the time they're seven or eight or 10 years old, you ask kids, what do you see and how can we explain it? And they're so paralyzed with the fear of giving the wrong answer that they stop exploring and stop thinking of science as something fun that they can do. Well, spring of 2020 has proven extraordinarily difficult in children's education. Many a parent has found themselves in the situation where they are all of a sudden, not just science educators, but history teachers, reading coaches, they are English tutors. Some parents are like, I have to figure out how to keep my kid in German classes. So right now, 
is a critical moment because without education, our future generations will not thrive. They will not do better than we do. It's like Malala Yousafzai said, one student, one teacher, one pen can change the world. I'm gravely concerned about the state of science education in America. And that is why I decided to revive a book I wrote back when I was competing to be Miss Alabama. Back then, I took the Alabama Department of Education standards for what children must learn in order to go up a grade level in third, fourth, and fifth grades. And then I tied experiments to each of those educational standards. Well, I realized right now, moms and average people probably need a lot of help. How do we teach our children science when you perhaps have no science background? So I revived the book and I'm so excited that I have collaborated with some amazing women to endorse the book and to get it into the hands of moms that need it and children that need it. Now is your moment, Mama. Get our book for free on my website, www.lindsayelmore.com. It's in the shop and I cannot wait for you to see it. It's free for anyone who needs it. And we encourage you to make a donation because a portion of the proceeds go to support children's science education. Now, on today's show, I am so excited to talk with the current Miss America, Camille Schreier. She is going to tell us about her journey to get science on the center stage at the competition. I was so excited when Camille won because Camille was so unapologetically a scientist from every piece of the competition she was a scientist and i'm going to play you a clip of the video that i took when camille won where i am celebrating the fact that a chemist and a soon-to-be pharmacist is now the reigning miss america yes, look the chicken pharmacy school wins the chemist takes the crown that's what i'm talking about after I speak with Camille, I will talk to one of the top seven finishers at the Miss America competition, the current Miss Alabama, Tierra Pennington. We're going to talk about the work that she does to bring awareness to the plight that people with psoriasis and psoriatic arthritis face daily. Tierra is only the first in the history of the Miss University of Alabama program. She is the first African-American winner of that competition, and she is only the second black Miss Alabama in history. We get a chance to discuss how society could change if more young girls got involved in the competition and we saw greater diversity on the Miss America stage. Welcome to The Lindsay Elmore Show, a podcast that helps you find fulfillment amidst chaos. On this show, I interview thought leaders, doctors, creatives, spiritual gurus, and game changers who inspire you to pursue your dreams, overcome obstacles, and leave your mark. Camille 
Schreier grew up in Bucks County, Pennsylvania before moving to Virginia to pursue her undergraduate degree. In 2018, Camille graduated with honors from Virginia Tech with a dual bachelor's of science degrees in biochemistry and systems biology. She is currently pursuing her doctor of pharmacy at Virginia Commonwealth University. In June of 2019, Camille was named Miss Virginia after breaking from tradition to perform the catalytic decomposition of hydrogen peroxide on stage as her talent. Her unique talent performance and her focus on women in science, technology, engineering, and math has sparked a positive reaction of inclusivity for the program. Camille's story has been shared with hundreds of children and viewed by millions. She can be seen on national and international media outlets, including The Today Show, Talk Stoop, CNN, BBC, The Kelly Clarkson Show, CBS This Morning, Inside Edition, The Weather Channel, Southern Living, Canada's CTV, Germany's RTL, and many, many more. On December 19th of 2019, Camille earned the job of Miss America 2020 after completing a live on NBC show from the Mohegan Sun Arena in Connecticut. She is a certified naloxone trainer in the city of Richmond and Schreier will use the Miss America national recognition to promote her social impact initiatives. It's called Mind Your Meds and it helps people to understand why drug safety and abuse prevention in pediatrics to geriatrics is so important. Most recently, Camille was awarded the Engineering Champion of the Award by the Phi Sigma Rho National Sorority for her work in promoting women in engineering and technical fields. Camille will travel more than 300 days, we hope, at some point to share her message and advocate for change and to bring more women into science. In addition to her passion for science and drug safety, Camille has battled with body image issues. As a young woman who previously battled an eating disorder, Camille chose to compete in Miss America 2020 because of the redirection from physical appearance to social impact. It is my distinct honor to welcome Camille Schreier to the Lindsay Elmore Show. Hello, thank you so much, Lindsay, for that wonderful introduction and for having me. Um, yeah, I'm hoping that I can travel around 300 days this year. I'm not sure if that's actually going to end up happening. <laughs> well, it sounds like you may be Miss America for two years. So, you know, you're going to get those days in because your message matters. Your message you. matters. And I, I will admit I'm a little bit starstruck right now. I am a bit of a Miss America nerd. I so remember I recorded that 1993 pageant when Leanza Cornette won in that yellow dress and I watched it. I watched it as a contestant, as a judge, and I competed within the Miss America system and fully believe in the way that it empowers women to pursue their education. And mm -hmm. so tell us, why did you choose science, technology, engineering, and math as your 
platform, also known as the Social Impact Initiative. Why that direction? So it's funny. Science actually technically isn't my primary social impact initiative. That is what I work on in terms of the Mind Your Meds. Got it. But I will say, science has become probably equal to what I do in terms of my time um, and where my efforts are served through my time as Miss Virginia and now as Miss America. And I really wanted to focus that. I think that when I was kind of developing my personal brand going into Miss Virginia and Miss America, I was thinking about, okay, who do I want to be as a candidate? Well, who do I want to rep represent myself as? And I had always thought that I could not even compete in the Miss America organization because I didn't have a performing talent. And so I wanted to use science as my talent. That was part of who I was. It's authentic to myself and what my true passions are. And I just wanted to go all in and be the girl that when they looked at me on stage, they said, oh, that's the scientist. And that's what I wanted that um, kind of that recognition to be. And I was excited to kind of just bring that to the forefront. I was like, I'm a scientist. This is who I am. If you choose me, you know exactly what you're getting. Um, but also I think it's important that a figure like a Miss America that has always been seen as generally pretty superficial by the public shows that they have that educational background, shows that science is important in a kind of position that has traditionally been primarily about appearance for so long. Um, and you know what, there have been Miss Americas for years and years and years that have been educated and successful and really accomplished people, but that wasn't always highlighted effectively. And so just for me to be able to kind of break all this open and really restart the conversation in the public, I think is something that has been, you know, something coming from me putting science at the forefront. So it's been quite a journey pretty fast. I love just that you, number one, went into the competition with a plan. And your plan was you're going to get one consistent woman across the interview, the evening gown, the onstage question, the talent, the everything. How you convinced them to let you make such a mess of the Miss Virginia and Miss America stage, I applaud you for that because there are some strict rules when it comes to those talent competitions about what you can and cannot do. I asked, um, I was very concerned that I would be allowed to do something. Um, there are a few restrictions. Um, I'm not allowed to use fire, I asked. Um, you, <laughs> yeah, I know. Um, I was concerned about the ceiling heights because I didn't want to hit the ceiling in any venue I was in. Um, I went through a lot of logistical forethought and planning to make sure that I would not damage anyone's property because I think especially when you're doing something out of the box, I didn't want to be the person that came in and then uh, caused damage to the venue because I was doing something different. So I think that when you try to do things that are different, you also have to be respectful of where you're going. Um, but the only other rules that I know of is that you cannot have an, a live animal on stage. And I think in the 30s, there had been, Miss, I think it was Miss Montana rode a horse on stage and it fell into the orchestra pit. So some of these rules come about as experiences teach the organization that maybe rules need to be changed. Um, but that's one of the misperceptions I think of the organization is that, you know, those five talents that you typically see, singing, dancing, instrumental talents, um, baton twirling and ventriloquism, that those are the only ones that are allowed. And there's nothing in the rules that say that you can't do anything else. Yeah. Um, and so that was the cool thing. I'm like, who says I can't do this? And so I asked and came up with, I think coming up with the plan to make sure that it was 
um, able to be executed in a timely fashion and without any mess or limited mess was a lot of the reason why I think that a lot of that, that planning needed to be had. <laughs> so I want to tell you a story. Back in the day, all I ever wanted to be was a singer, a performer, an actress. That was it. And my mom, I was raised by a single mom. Uh, my dad has always been a loving part of my life, but my parents were divorced. And so my mom was on her own and she was always like, no, no, you're going to get a real job, not <laughs> singing, dancing, acting, and performing. And so eventually I figured out how do I make science performance? And that is exactly what you did. You made science into entertainment. Why do you think that making science entertaining and accessible is so important for actually encouraging young girls and to go into science and encouraging women to stay in science? I think science is really intimidating for a lot of students. Um, especially right now, we watch on TV every day, researchers providing all these you know, research studies about drugs that are helping to treat coronavirus and all of these high level things that seem so intangible for students. Um, and yes, those things are incredibly important pieces of science, but to show how exciting and colorful and explosive science can be and how maybe if I can teach them something in 90 seconds about a simple reaction, then maybe when they go into their classrooms, they're gonna listen to their teachers a little bit differently. Just to be kind of invigorate that inner flame in a student that says, oh my gosh, this is really cool. I'm gonna listen to this and pay attention to this more. That's really what I hope to do is to be that inspiration, not to substitute for their science teacher in their classroom, but to inspire them to listen to their science teacher in a different way and maybe be able to relate to someone. Uh, and maybe, especially for a young woman, I think that we don't have a lot of great role, role models for women in science right now, especially you know, in the media, in the influencer culture, we don't see a lot of women being like, hey, look, I'm a scientist. Um, it's a lot of, you know, outfits and bloggers and there's nothing wrong with that but I want to be that person for those young girls to say oh gosh well she's a scientist maybe I can do that in my career um, and just be that more relatable figure for them and doesn't mean that I can't be for young boys too I can still inspire them the same way um, and so it's been a really really cool thing I bring that demonstration all over the place and I, I have done it in many auditoriums in many schools um, and it's still a mess every time. <laughs> Oh, but you're getting better at cleaning it up each and every time that you do it. Um, exactly. <laughs> another thing about being a scientist online, I know for me, I have faced discrimination because I'm too pretty or because it's a photo of me where I am modeling in people's perception. They say you cannot put a scientific caption mm -hmm with your image and I just push back on people all the time and they're like what what does your picture have to do with what you're talking about and I'm like well that is actually me so I think it's important for us to all stand up and say women who look a ton of different ways are also scientists and so how did you get to this point? You know, did you have opportunities when you were younger to experience science? Did, did you have any influential teachers who influenced you? How did you decide to get two degrees in scientific fields and then pursue being a pharmacist? 
Well, gosh, first I want to say in terms of that social piece, I feel you on that. I have a lot of people that say that I'm not actually a scientist. Me too. Um, and I'm like, well, I have two undergraduate degrees and you know, it depends on what your definition is. A lot of people only consider those who are PhD research scientists who is actively pursuing research in their career to be a scientist. I don't think that that's necessarily representative. I think of those who of us who have pursued undergraduate degrees, number one, are working in the field and are pursuing graduate degrees in the field. I think that we are as much scientists um, as anyone else in the field. Um, so number one, that's something that I get all the time. And I'm like, would you say that to a male counterpart? I'm not sure. Um, but independent of that, I have always loved science. Like I was the little science nerd. I should show you, there's a picture I shared in a lot of my school presentations. I'm in kindergarten and I have my hair stuck up straight and I have beakers in my hands and glasses on and it says mad scientist. I was like five years old. And I love that picture because it's, you know, going back to that talent piece, just like women who I competed with maybe had gone to dance class since they were in kindergarten, five years old. That was me at five years old. So there's nothing that's new here. <laughs> um, and I always loved the outdoors. I picked up frogs and snakes in my backyard and brought them in my house. And my parents were like, what are you doing? Um, loved cooking and baking with my mom and dad. And so my mom's a nurse by background. I think nurses are scientists too. Of um, course. And my dad is, he grew up um, and kind of, he was always entrepreneurial and just kind of a mechanical person. He doesn't have an undergrad degree, um, but he's a diesel mechanic by trade. And my parents owned their own electrical contracting company. And so the, the story behind that is my dad really has this engineering mind. My mom kind of has this medical mind. And so all of the things that I was doing, they were kind of like, wow, that's, you're engineering something. You are, you know, learning chemistry in the kitchen and, you know, going to first aid class or lifeguarding class. I was learning all of these kind of skills that were science related. Continued to pursue that. I took every extra science class in high school that I could. Um, I didn't have like a particular science role model or teacher that stood out to me. Um, I really enjoyed my eighth grade science class because my teacher had us read a book called The Hot Zone, which is very relevant now. Um, it was about an Ebola epidemic in the United States um, and one that happened in Africa as well. And I was like, infectious disease, whoa, this is really cool. And I'm like 14. I was like, maybe I could do something with science that also would have to do with medicine. Spoiler alert, I hate blood. I don't wanna touch people, but I love the idea of medicine. And so as I continued through my career, I thought about so many different things that I wanted to do meteorology, engineering, um, marine biology, but it was always science. And I ended up going to school for engineering at a school that I didn't like, number one, and in a major that I really didn't like. And I was like, I don't know if I'm supposed to be a scientist. And I don't know if I really like STEM because I don't like this. And that was number one, something that I talk about all the time, because just because you don't like every piece of STEM doesn't mean that you don't like STEM or that you're yes. not good at it. You don't yes. have to be a pro at everything. So, and also if you're in a situation that's not putting you, you know, at the best opportunity to succeed and you can change that situation, like changing your college, do it. That was the best choice I ever made. So I went to a new college um, and I just continued to pursue and explore. And so I found biochemistry. Um, I ended up interning in a pharmaceutical company for two years and was like, pharmacists can work in a pharmaceutical company. And so I went to pharmacy school and here I am now. So it was, no one ever was surprised when I said I wanted to do any kind of science. Um, and I really never considered anything else. And I think that it's so true to who I am 
but I am a, I am a little bit different than what people expect a scientist to be. Um, and that kind of goes back to what your point is. And I was a little worried kind of if I would face those who didn't take me seriously as a scientist. And that never really was the case, I will say that. I was more concerned almost on the other end of was the science community going to take me seriously as a woman who was going to go and compete in this, you know, what was considered to many to be a beauty pageant. Um, and I will say I was consistently surprised because for a lot of women who are high level researchers who have done this for their entire career, it's so refreshing to see someone take that and kind of blow open this traditionally, um, you know, or this organization that had never really had science at the forefront. So either way, um, gosh, science has been a part of my life for my entire life. And I think it, I will forever be part of my history in every way, especially in the Miss America program. <laughs> Absolutely. And I mean, and that is what is so spectacular is that you broke the mold and that is why you went from doing a local to winning your state to winning Miss America in an organization that many women compete in for three, four, five, sometimes even six years if they really have the birth dates right. And so it's it's a powerful story. And I also think that if people take a moment to really look around at what women came through the Miss America program, be it like me, I, I went to my local and I competed in state. I did it one time. I decided, you know what, this, this isn't the right thing for me, but the skills that it gave me, the presentation, the poise on stage, being able to clearly communicate your ideas. For me, writing a book that now I'm going to get to revive and hopefully instill science in a younger generation, you look around at the women who came through Miss America and you're talking politicians, journalists, recording artists, mothers, opera performers. You're talking extraordinarily talented and intelligent women. So do you think that you're adding this voice because something is lacking in science education and that the way that we position science for women. Is that why you're so passionate about speaking about science? Or is this, as you just said, just something that really just came so in, it was so natural for you? I think it's a little bit of both. I think that it came naturally. And, you know, I, I grew up with parents that are business owners, and I'm very much mindful of supply and demand. And I kind of created this product because it was solving an issue for myself. Okay, I don't have a talent for this organization and I wanna compete, I'm gonna do science. But the demand just flooded where I had parents and teachers and all of these people that wanted me to come talk to their young girls and, and share my story in this. And scientists who were excited about this. And so I'm like, okay, there's something that is lacking in our society and I'm going to try to fill that need to the best of my ability. Um, I think that in terms of science education and really a lot of our education, or at least the education that I got, it's not really, those communications and soft skills are not taught in the classroom environment. And you can be the smartest scientist in the room, but if you can't describe what work you've done or talk about your research or be comfortable presenting that, the value of what you've done is not 
as valuable as if you could understand it and also communicate it. And that is something I think that a lot of people in a lot of different careers, but so importantly in science, don't necessarily have. And so if you can combine these like communication and, and getting people the skills of communication, but also getting people excited about what you're doing, that is really, I think, the key to a lot of success in science. Um, it's something that I think can help keep companies moving. I mean, if you're talking about just, you know, business development, your business has to continue to keep itself exciting. Um, whatever research they're working on has to be continuously exciting. Um, and I think that that's something that I'm able to kind of bring to the forefront. Okay, we need to market science as something that people want to do, that kids want to get into. And th these careers are growing so quickly that why wouldn't you want to get into a science career? You can kind of be a salesperson for science as well. Absolutely. Um, I think that, that comes from the experience I had with my parents. Yeah, I love that the way that your parents talked to you as a child actually educated you on, okay, I'm not just, I know for me, not pouring vinegar over eggs to see what happens. You are training yourself in chemical changes. That mm -hmm. is critically important. You know, you're not just constructing a blanket fort in the living room. You are engineering a structure, whatever those things are. I absolutely love that. And so tell us more. So you chose for your platform to talk about minding your meds and have taken on the rampant abuse of prescription medications in the United States. Why did you decide to go this direction instead of focusing on STEM more broadly? I think that I wanted something that would touch every single person that I would meet if I were a title holder. And I knew that science was going to be part of what I was talking about anyway. And I wanted to use the opportunity to have my social initiative be something that I felt was relevant to anyone I met. Um, you would rarely find, I mean, you're a pharmacist, you rarely find someone that has not ever taken a medication in their life at some point or had, or independently of that, has not ever given their child medication at some point. So it's something that's so relevant to every single person and can have really intense consequences if not cared for appropriately. And so in my first year of pharmacy school, just kind of understanding the patient education techniques and thinking about a busy mom who might have multiple children that are sick, who are trying to figure out what they need to give their child if it's over the counter or just managing medications in the home or why it's important that you need to know what medica the medication that you're taking, what you're taking it for, how often you're taking it, how you're supposed to take it, how you're supposed to store it. I remember being stressed out in the fake interview room trying to learn how to educate a patient because I was struggling to remember all of the pieces of information that I had to make sure that they were saying back to me. And so I'm thinking of it as, you know, in what situations is, you know, is there a potential for risk for patients in these seemingly normal and benign situations? And so I had a mom, I said it was a nurse. And so I was very comfortable with medicine growing up. I got sick all the time. I was that kid that got sick anytime anyone else did. And my mom would measure everything out. She would have a log and know when she gave me Tylenol last and what she could give me with what, because she's so mindful. But that is because of her education in, in nursing school. And there are so many parents that for no fault of their own don't necessarily have that knowledge or education and they can hurt their child unknowingly. Um, 
And so I wanted to focus on the medication safety piece, but then I went to a naloxone training class in pharmacy school. So naloxone is one of those drugs that's used to help treat opiate addiction. Oh my gosh. Yes. And it's really, it's the overdose. It's life changing. It's life saving. Excuse me. Yeah. It will save you from an overdose. Absolutely. I mean, in a matter of minutes. And so I didn't understand what naloxone was. And I also didn't understand the gravity of the opioid epidemic. And I was like, oh my gosh, I feel like I'm probably the only person that hasn't been touched by the opioid epidemic in some way. Now, my grandmother had been kind of, you know, addicted to fentanyl patches in her final years of life, but opioid addicted, it is different. But so that's about the the closest I get. Um, And I'm grateful for that. But I'm like, dang, this is a huge issue. Why why do we not hear about this every day on the news? Um, 130 people die every single day from opioid overdose. That's a huge amount. That's more Um, than the people that died yesterday from coronavirus in New York State. I'm going to let you say, I agree with you. I'm not going to go there. Perspective. Perspective is really, really important. And this is continuing. This this has grown. Um, It's not getting better. And so when I was thinking about, you know, this can tie in really well to medication safety because a lot of these addictions start from prescription medication. So I wanted to kind of make this one big wrapped up piece of why you need to be mindful of basically the medications that you put in your body. And I think a lot about, you know, we see a lot on the news about like, you know, making sure that you're reading the nutrition facts on your food that you're in you're in the supermarket. How much sugar does your food have? How much fat? And we're being really mindful, organic foods, non-GMOs, but are we really being mindful about the medications that we're putting in our body or our children's body? And why would you be so cautious about the foods that you're eating, but not be even more cautious about the medications that you're taking? So that was kind of how this became um, a huge platform that I have now connected into. And I'm so grateful that I chose that because really, and it's become true. There is not one person I talk to that this is not relevant to. And the opioid piece is so, I mean, it's a sad fact that it's so relevant to so many people because they are touched. I hear the stories, my family member, myself, these other pe- people that I know have been touched. They've lost their lives. They've been addicted. It is truly, you know, we have a pandemic happening. It is a pandemic in, across the world, but absolutely an epidemic here in the United States. Um, has been for a long time, and I didn't really fully understand it until I started doing this work, and goodness, more people need to talk about this. And it's so important because it's not just opioids that can kill you. You can overdose and die from medications that you can find over-the-counter at your local pharmacy, and I don't think that people know these things. It simply is just like, okay, I'm just, oh, it doesn't matter. Just take it, take another one. But it absolutely matters. And as you said, it's not just how much do I take, but when do I take it? How do I take it? How do I store it? So I ensure it doesn't break down. It's, it's a really huge continuum. So I have to say, thank you for bringing pharmacists to the forefront because Mm -hmm. pharmacists are unfortunately like healthcare's forgotten professional. We are just the ones, people people have no idea what we do. They have no idea what skill sets that we have. They have no idea how much that pharmacists can actually teach them about how to appropriately use their medications. And I will also reassure you, the drug information all of a sudden one day 
it just clicks and you'll never forget it ever, ever again. Looking forward to that day. (laughs) You should look forward to that day because it is an absolutely like amazing thing to where all of a sudden you don't even second guess. Is that what this drug is for? Do I take it twice a day or is it once a day? Is the dose different when it's IV versus PO? You know, you're never going to forget it. You will... No matter what you do in life, which may never actually manifest into practicing pharmacy, but whatever you do in life, one of my pharmacy professors, because I haven't practiced pharmacy in five years, five and a half years, and she said, that's okay. You will still always be a pharmacist. And so, yes, look forward to that day couple years from now and you know (laughs) I'm looking forward to you know learning that knowledge because that's why I went to pharmacy school and that's why I love education Mm -hmm. grateful I'm I'm, I'm ready to get there again (laughs) yes and I also you know I'm a huge advocate of residencies in pharmacy you graduate pharmacy school thinking that you know everything there is to know about pharmacy and then like day one on your like pgy1 rotation you're like I don't know anything (laughs) because it becomes real you Mm -hmm. are really signing your name to an order saying give this much drug to this person or if you're doing community pharmacy rotations you are actually giving someone medicines and saying take this home and take it in this way and it's 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 absolutely terrifying. I remember checking my first order for Tylenol about 35 times because I was like, they might die if they take too much. (laughs) So keep going, you know, because you are already on just such a huge trajectory and you have the opportunity to advocate for so many kids and women to go into science. Why are you such a big advocate specifically for biochemistry and the importance that it can have on our lives? Oh gosh. I mean, every single, you know, medical issue that we each have, you know, heard about cancer, Alzheimer's, these things that might seem incurable, every single piece of that is solved with science, especially biochemistry. So any biochemistry, chemistry, and biology all combined because they're all a little bit different. Um, but this is the way that we're changing people's lives and solving issues. And I think that that was why I loved the idea of biochemistry because it was so related to human health um, and understanding how medications worked, how we could take you know, an antibiotic that treats an infection that maybe 200 years ago would have been fatal. And it's just a couple doses of antibiotics and you're all better. And how amazing that is. And what are these other things that we could kind of figure out and and save people's lives with science. And I think that that is one of the things in terms of why I'm so passionate about having other people want to pursue science. If there's someone out there who might in their future be able to cure a disease like cancer and someone squelches their fire in terms of being passionate about science, you lose that opportunity for that person to, to get into that career path that maybe they were destined for and they lost interest because someone didn't foster that appropriately. So I'm a big, um, I think a part of my role is really to foster that for those children. I think that that was what made me successful in a science career because my interest was never squelched. It was always supported and I was put into an environment that allowed me to continue that. 
And I hope to do that because not all students have that support either in their home or with their teachers or with their friends. And so if I, with my sparkly hat on, can come into their school one day and tell them how much I love science and maybe they can be inspired, we need more scientists. Those jobs are never going to go away. They're only growing. So Absolutely. we need more people to go into these careers. And you've used your time in quarantine to actually evolve and grow some new skill sets. I read in a recent article that you have been learning how to shoot, perform, and do science education online. And so tell us how you have made lemonade out of all those COVID-19 lemons? You know, there's a lot of lemons. And so I've been making a lot of lemonade with my time. Honestly, I was a little stuck at first of how I was going to use this time appropriately. And it took me a couple weeks. Um, I had a DSLR camera here sitting on my desk that I bought probably a year or two ago and never really figured out how to use. And now I'm downstairs in my basement um, with a backdrop, a table, and a whole studio with garage lights with that DSLR camera that I now know how to use. So in terms of the technical application skills of understanding how to work that piece of technology, and there's a lot of science behind photography and video shooting and all of those kinds of things that I didn't, I really never had exposure to. Exposure. Yeah, I was just about to say no pun. No pun intended there. It's worse, trust me. Um, but really now, so I have been, you know, I've been going into schools in person and doing these demonstrations, but I can't do that anymore. And there's also children at, at home who are not in school and their parents are looking to give them um, additional education in terms of science and their teachers are looking for those kind of resources. And so I've kind of started to make these science videos um, and I've, I've improved a lot since I've started to do them. Um, but I'm really able to almost reach more children than I would have been in person. Now, nothing really compares to seeing me shoot foam out of a beaker in person, but if you can watch it on a screen, it's better than nothing. Um, it also gives me a little bit more time to be able to explain what's happening and maybe those students can go and watch it at home with their parents. I don't have, you know, that certain amount of time in that auditorium with those kids. But either way, I have all this content that I've now created, and I'm so grateful that I've been able to do that because Miss America's usually traveling 300 days a year. We talked about that in the beginning. And so Miss America doesn't usually have time to be able to create content like that. It's very time consuming. I do a lot of editing um, <laughs> and really just the, the setting up that entire studio setup so that the light is right and the angles are correct. Um, learned a lot, but it's it, it has shown me also the skills that are in different pieces of STEM. So that's kind of the T part of STEM. And I'm doing the S on the table, then I'm videoing with the T, and I'm engineering my studio. So it all kind of comes together. Um, and that's what I just love about this entire process is that I'm learning, but I'm also able to kind of teach others as I'm doing it. Absolutely. Well, Camille Schreier, it has just been so much fun talking to you today. Before you go, can I ask you a couple of lightning round questions? Absolutely. You okay, can go here on. we go. One of the things Miss America's excel at is rapid fire questions coming their way. These are easy. These aren't going to be what the judges ask. Okay, well, I'm America. a little nervous now. Don't do it. Don't get nervous. All right. What is your number one strength? Mm, creativity. Oh, I could see that. Totally. What is the thing you struggle with the most? Trying to make everything perfect. 
Yes. Oh, I wish we had had time to talk. You and I are both eating disorder survivors, and that I think is at the key of women and men who suffer from eating disorders is there's like a control and a perfection that we just is completely unattainable. So true. If you could give advice to a younger version of yourself, what would it be? Mm. Mm. That all of your mistakes will teach you so much more than your successes. Absolutely. What keeps you up at night? My cats. Do they? (laughs) I didn't say anything, but I saw them walking around in the background a little bit. Do they walk all over you all night? Yeah, and they like to make really loud meowing sounds when I'm not giving them attention. So usually like at three o'clock in the morning or they'll find they have little toys that they like and so they throw them around. um, And sometimes they like to bring them to me in the middle of the night as like a gift. Um, Cats actually think that we are like larger hairless cats that can't hunt for themselves. So sometimes (laughs) they'll bring you a gift and be like, look, I got you something. Uh. My cats, but honestly, in all seriousness, everything happening in the news and the media right now kind of keeps me up at night and uh, it's shocking. So hoping to get back to some normalcy in our world soon, but uh, my cats. Me very much as well. Who has been your greatest inspiration? Hmm. Of course, my mom. I think every, most girls, if not a lot of girls, will say that. Um, some, a celebrity inspiration of mine is definitely Ellen DeGeneres. Yes. Um, and it's funny because I feel like in some ways her and I could not be any more different. Um, but I'm, I love those who are kind. <laughs> I think that kindness and understanding is so important. Even, and this again is so relevant to what we're going through, but understanding that people can be completely different than you, but you can also be kind and respectful to them in the same way. Um, and I kind of think of that in terms of, you know, not everyone wants to be a scientist. So I go into schools and sometimes there's kids that have no interest in what I'm doing, but being respectful and trying to make it something that they want to listen to and understanding that not everyone has the same feelings and views and interests that I do, I think is really important. So I, I really admire her a lot. I, I really love her as well. And I recently listened to her interview with Oprah Winfrey back in 1997, when she came out on the Oprah Winfrey show, which talk about guts And Oprah just summed it up so well that when you cannot live authentically, it's going to eat you. It's going to be just such a burden to bear. And that's why I think as female scientists, we just need to say like, look, I'm, I don't know where this came from. I just know I love science. And to all of our young girls listening, please listen to Camille's advice that just because you don't like one part of science doesn't mean you won't like all of science. I started as a biology major, could not stand taxonomy, hated (laughs) it. I like want, I could not stand the memorization that went into it. So I became a chemistry major and got a degree in chemistry and then, you know, went on to pharmacy school and now I'm a natural wellness advocate. So knowing science can open up so many doors for you. Last question. God to you is. Hmm. God to me is someone that has a plan for me that I don't know about. And I think that more than anything through this process, we talked about how quickly this happened for me, that there was some reason I was supposed to do this. Um, And it was more than what I thought I could do, but apparently I was meant to do all of this right now. So I, I really think of that more as, you know, that there is a destiny there for me and it's not up to me to decide what that is, but just that I will follow that. And um, even when things go wrong, that it's part of the plan. 
Absolutely. That to me has given me so much comfort because I, I look around at the world around me and I go, none of this makes a lot of sense right now, but I understand if I trust the process, the universe always has our back. God is always a presence there in, in my understanding of the world. And so Camille Schreier, Miss America 2020, a soon-to-be pharmacist and advocate of science in all people, but especially in young girls and young women. Thank you so much for being who you are. Everyone, go and follow Camille's journey at, at Miss America on Instagram and at Camille Schreier. That's C-A-M-I-L-L-E-S-C-H-R-I-E-R. And you can always follow up with all things Miss America using the hashtag Miss America. Camille Schreier, thank you so much for being on the Lindsay Elmore Show. Thank you so much for having me. Do you know a young girl who is nervous about her first period? Trust me, I understand those emotions. When I first started my period, I was a nervous wreck. I didn't want to go to school. I didn't want to acknowledge that there were now additional steps that I had to take to take care of myself. And I really, really didn't want to talk to anyone about it. Well, Thinks is changing all of that. Their line, Thinks Between, is specifically designed for young girls. So if you know a young girl who is nervous to get started with her first period, head on over to www.shethinks.com slash Elmore. That's www.shethinks.com slash Elmore. Grab a pair of period-proof panties that will keep young girls in school and continue to have them raise their hands without lowering their standards. Tierra Pennington was crowned Miss Alabama 2019 in June and competed at Miss America 2020 in December, where she was a top seven finalist. Tierra also was Miss Alabama's outstanding teen in 2016 and placed in the top eight at the national competition. She also served as Miss University of Alabama and was the first African-American winner of that competition and only the second African-American winner of Miss Alabama in the history of the competition. At the university, Tierra is a member of Phi Mu Sorority and has earned the distinctions of being being announced on the president's list, the dean's list, and the international dean's list. She has extensive volunteer work with the National Psoriasis Foundation and has a personal connection to helping people understand the role that psoriasis can take in people who are affected by it. She, because of her work, earned the National Psoriasis Foundation Leadership Award. She is currently pursuing a bachelor's in political science at the University of Alabama and plans to attend law school after she completes her bachelor's. She looks forward to being Miss Alabama not only for one year, but for two years and will be returning to school while she is still serving as Miss Alabama, adding much more to this very talented and successful woman's plate. So Tierra Pennington, welcome to the Lindsay Elmore Show. Well, thank you so much for having me. It's an honor. I am so excited to talk to you today. And so I want to start out just by talking about your family's history with 
pageantry and the competition. You know, you have been involved in pageants for a long time. Your mom was a contestant within the Miss Alabama system. And you guys are a rare family. There aren't a lot of African-American families that are this dedicated to pursuing their education in pageantry competitions. And so tell us what got your mom involved, why you decided to follow in her footsteps, and what has been your experience as an African-American woman within the Miss America system? Of course. So... What really got my mother started in this organization, she was a student at the University of North Alabama, and my mother always loved to perform. Performing was her thing. And so, of course, there they always have the Miss UNA competition or pageant, as they called it back in the day. And so my mom would just always decide she was going to compete just because she loved talent. And then she found out that just competing, and she was a runner-up to Miss UNA, that she got all this full rides to the University of North Alabama. So it took care of her education there at UNA. And then when she found out and learned more about, wow, like if I win this, I can go to Miss Alabama and eventually maybe possibly go to Miss America. And so my mom was so involved in that way. She loved the competition. She loved what the organization stood for, for young women. Unfortunately, she never won Miss UNA, but she went on to win other titles where it gave her the ride to go to out to Miss Alabama and to compete. And so really, she just loved being able to perform, being able to talk about, you know, her own experiences with really this stepping stone of being able to finish her education at UNA, debt completely debt-free. And she just really just love the organization and that's how I ended up loving the organization because of my mother and I was so inspired by her because she was the first African-American to break into the top five at the time back in the mid to late 80s and so just knowing that she always wanted to continue on even though that she was done with the organization at a certain point and wanted to move on in her career with singing that she still wanted to encourage young women of color to compete because she knows how much it helped her with scholarship money and being able to graduate debt-free. And so she continued on helping other young women, especially trying to bring in young women of color. And then being her daughter, I was like, I want to do this because my mother was able to do this. I was a little nervous because I never thought that I would ever win Miss Alabama. You know, I was nervous. I didn't want to embarrass my mother, didn't want to embarrass my family. And I didn't know if I would be good in this organization or really enjoy it. And I just loved it, enjoyed it. And then when I found out that I was pretty good at it, then it just set the sails from being in the teen competition to going on to winning Miss Alabama's Outstanding Teen back in 2016, and then going to nationals, which was just a whole experience of itself, being able to compete and make friends all across the country. And then after that, I took a break for a little bit and decided that, I don't know, like I've already paid for my education. I decided that I wanted to go to the University of Alabama, but after sitting out for a year, I thought I want to do this again but this time for fun the first go around it was really about winning that scholarship money and being able to go to my dream university but this second time around starting out in this program I knew that I wanted to do it for fun and that I wanted to do it for enjoyment and I loved every single moment of it I competed for two years before I won Miss Alabama 
And here I am, Miss Alabama, for not only one year, but going on a second year. So that will be fun, as well as going back to school. So trying to juggle and balance both of that. But when it comes to my experience in the system and being a Black woman, you know, you always don't have that many representatives here in this organization that you think, oh, wow, they look like me. But I always thought, you know, I want other young girls to have that experience that I didn't have. I want them to see a state title holder, a woman of color holding that position. And it's just, just really opened my eyes, especially when I won my local title, being the first African-American to hold the title of Miss University of Alabama, that I would go to on different appearances and young girls and their mothers would come up to me and they would say, I want to thank you because now my daughter has someone who looks just like her who's representing the state who's representing the University of Alabama when all you think of is football but now we know more about this organization because of you and because of the scholarship opportunities so that has been my main goal and my mission this year as Miss Alabama to bring not only all women into this organization because it's fabulous for different life skills that they'll need, but specifically women of color, because I think it's something that a lot of women of color don't think maybe they're into or just think, oh, it's just a frou-frou beauty pageant. But th this is a competition that will build so many different skills for you and this will be so beneficial. So that has been one of my goals this year as Miss Alabama to branch out and to bring other women of color in this organization. I agree with you on two fronts. Number one, if people don't see goals in front of them as a representative of like, oh, she looks like me, they don't think of it as a possibility. And so I completely agree with you on that. And then I also know that people do frown upon and they're like, oh, it's just a pageant. But I learned so much from my time competing about, you know, the skills that you craft as a speaker, as a connector of other people, of learning from others is so true and profound. So what do you think would shift within, not only within the organization, but also just within the world around us? if more young girls of color knew that this was a possibility for them, you know, speak to what has changed in your life and how young girls of color can leverage this to further their education. Absolutely. I think it would be changing, world changing for all types of women of color if they were involved in this organization. And I think it would also change this organization tremendously because you would see other young girls who maybe aren't in the system who think, oh, I don't see anyone competing in this organization that looks like me. If we see more women of color competing and more women of color winning these state competitions, then you'll get other little brown and black girls wanting to compete. And they will learn during this organization and through this organization organization that they will gain skills where if they want to be an advocate for anything that they want to be anything that they're passionate about that they can do that and that they can have a voice and then they can inspire other little brown and little black girls and just women in general to compete and to make a difference in this world because we definitely need more women out there who are leaders in our world and to show that women can do anything so I think it definitely would be mind-blowing and changing, world-changing with this organization. Yeah, I agree. I mean, I remember when Nina Davrilori was crowned Miss America and as the first Indian American 
um, woman. And I had the I had the the privilege. I have a friend who's been involved with the Miss New York organization for like twenty years, and so she knows all the Miss New Yorks. And so I had the opportunity to have dinner with Nina's mom. Um, not too long ago when I went to the Miss America competition back in 2018, I guess that was. And it was just powerful to see families with different stories to tell, different narratives than what we're commonly used to. And it's not just about increasing African-American presence. It's, it's diversity on so many levels that is needed not only within, within Miss America, but everywhere. Everywhere needs diversity because when we don't have voices different than our own at the table, we fail to see a different side of the equation and we fail to make optimal decisions. And so I agree. I, I wish more young women knew that this was an opportunity because you get to do things that you can be so passionate about. And so what, what made you, because one of the things you have to do as Miss Alabama is you have to work and do a lot of volunteer work and you have to actually believe in something and campaign for it. And so you chose psoriasis and to work with um, the, forgive me for not knowing the Alabama affiliate, but the Alabama affiliate of the National Psoriasis Foundation. What made you choose that and why is this personally meaningful for you? Well, this is so meaningful to me on different levels. One being that my mother and uncle both suffer with psoriasis and psoriatic arthritis. And so knowing that and also that I could be affected and that there were so many people who have psoriasis but don't know that they have it because they just haven't been educated about the disease, then I want to take that next step to not only be an advocate with the National Psoriasis Foundation and a volunteer, but I also want to start something here in the state of Alabama. So as you mentioned, I started my own support group here in the state of Alabama called Psoriasis Take Action Alabama. And so that brought more awareness here in my community where I knew that there were those suffering with psoriasis and psoriatic arthritis. And being a young person, I'm one of the youngest committee members with the National Psoriasis Foundation. So I was able to help a lot of children and young people like myself who I knew was suffering with this horrible disease to bring them into the support group as well and to help them as much as possible. And I'm continuing to do that because unfortunately right now there is no cure for psoriasis and psoriatic arthritis. And so my main goal and job is to let people know that this is more than skin deep. It is not a simple rash. A lot of people think, oh, you can just go to CVS or Walgreens, pick up a simple ointment and it'll go away. Well, that is not the case. And as I mentioned, my mother and uncle have psoriasis and psoriatic arthritis, that means that it also affects and attacks the joints as well. So not only do they have to worry about the shedding of the skin and the discomfort that comes with that, but having to walk, and it's such an unpredictable disease. One day you can be up, moving, walking, and the next you can't get up off the couch. And I've seen that multiple times with my mother experiencing her going up and being so active with me. I mean, I'm all over the place, and then the next day she can't walk. So I've been really trying to try to let people know that this is more than skin deep and that there are a lot of people in the country that suffer with this disease and over the world there are 8 million there are 8 million Americans suffering with this disease and so trying to just really branch out there and let people know about it. 
So are there healthcare disparities in people who are disproportionately affected with psoriasis? Are there certain people that are more at risk for it? Well, right now they're still doing a lot of research on psoriasis and psoriatic arthritis because there's still so much unknown about it. One thing that we do know is that of course psoriasis does not discriminate. My mother is African-American, she has it. Um, a lot of people though, when they see different pictures, it's always the pictures of white people that has it. So with my mother experiencing it, it took them a little longer to really diagnose her back in the day with psoriasis because it just looks so differently on her skin and having darker skin. So trying to learn that I think can definitely be something that's difficult for a lot of maybe people of color that suffer with psoriasis because so many dermatologists are used to seeing it on lighter skin. And so because of that, it can be more difficult to diagnose at different times, as well as these medications for psoriasis and psoriatic arthritis are so super expensive. So if you don't have the proper healthcare insurance, thankfully, my mother has proper healthcare insurance that takes care of these shots that she takes, biologic medications that can cost thousands and thousands of dollars per shot. But if you don't have that much money, if you don't have great healthcare insurance, then what do you do? You're just walking around miserable trying to do the best that you possibly can. So one thing that I'm able to do as someone working with the National Psoriasis Foundation is to pair them up with the Patients Navigational Center and to help with other co-payment options to help with them with their psoriasis and psoriatic arthritis. You know, it also makes me wonder, with you pointing out that photography of patients with psoriasis is primarily on white skin, where it looks very pronounced pink with very pronounced white on top. I could see how that could be more challenging on darker skin. And it also makes me wonder if the clinical trials have been adequately represented to ensure that the medications are equally as safe in people with lighter skin as in people with darker skin because our genetics work a little bit differently. Our enzymes work a little bit differently depending on our ethnic origins. And so that's also something just absolutely fascinating that I just don't think people talk about. Like, yeah, we need representation even in clinical trials to help us bring safe medications to all people, to all people. So what can people look out for if they are concerned and maybe they've been headed to the pharmacy and they're putting the creams and the ointments? How do people know that this is something more that they actually need to bring up to a dermatologist? Absolutely. So one thing that I would let people know and one thing that I learned more about as someone that got to be part of the National Psoriasis Foundation's delegation going to actually speak to the FDA about these different medications. One thing that I learned is that if you notice that you have a spot or something on your skin that looks like maybe a little grazed bump or it's a patch of dry skin right there that just stays on your skin for about two weeks and you're trying to put different ointments on and it's just not going away then that's the time that you need to go see a dermatologist because what we have learned through all this different educations is that if you are diagnosed properly and 
and early, then that will help with be having to better manage your disease. So that's one thing that I let people know, because if you spot it right on and you go ahead and go speak to a dermatologist and try to work with them on different medication options, then you will have a better time at being able to manage it and keep it where it doesn't turn so severe, like my mother has had to deal with and thousands of other people suffering with psoriasis. I also would like to say that you can have psoriasis or know someone that has psoriasis in your family and not develop the psoriatic lesions on your skin, but you can develop psoriatic arthritis. So you can never even have any skin issues, but have joint pain. And if you know that someone in your history with your family has suffered with psoriasis and you just notice that, hey, like I'm having really discomfort in being able to walk and move. And I know that this has been happening for two weeks, then I need to go see a dermatologist who can link me up with a rheumatologist to try to help me with that as well. Okay. Wow. Okay. Lots of, I, I'm a pharmacist and I don't know that even I knew that you could develop the arthritic symptoms without the skin lesions. I'm probably somewhere in the recesses of my brain, but thanks so much for reminding us of all those things. So one of the things, you know, to win the Miss Alabama competition, you have to do something different. You have to like kind of break the mold a little bit. So what was your strategy going in? Because really the, the Miss Alabama competition is a, a, a very extended job application. And so what was your strategy for going in and saying, this is the Miss Alabama that I would like to be? Really, it was in the times where I was thinking about competing and watching other young women compete on the stage of Miss Alabama and even thinking back to my mother's time when she competed and trying to mold who I wanted to be and already kind of creating in my mind during the times when I was Miss University of Alabama that, hey, I'm going to act like I'm Miss Alabama because it's so important that I'm here at my university where there are so many students, there are so many people living in Tuscaloosa who may not ever ever meet Miss Alabama or may not ever see Miss Alabama, but they will see me. And so I thought I'm going to be that representative. I'm going to act like I'm already Miss Alabama. So anywhere that I went, I think that having these different speaking engagements and really connecting with my community on a more personal level really helped me because that's something that Miss Alabama does every single day. She's having to connect and act like, hey, we're best friends, even though I just met you because you may not ever see me again. And I want you to know what it means to be Miss Alabama. Alabama, I want you to know what it means to compete in this organization. And I want you to know that I'm trying to make a difference. And I hope that I leave this footprint in your life where you never forget me. So I tried to always have that in the back of my mind everywhere that I went as Miss University of Alabama and really just trying to work super hard on my social impact which is working with the National Psoriasis Foundation and also working extremely hard on my talent because singing is another way that you can connect and engage with all types of different people with different backgrounds. And so really trying to work with that as well as just trying to stay up and current on what was happening around me with the news, what was happening out in my community and just trying to stay as engaged as possible and knowing that at the end of the day, when I get to Miss Alabama week, that I have prepared, I've done everything that I possibly can do to be ready. And I'll either go into this weekend winning or I won't win, but that's okay. I've still gained from that experience. So I think being okay with not being Miss Alabama also helped me because I knew that I had already done everything possible that I could possibly have done. So then when I 
I won Miss Alabama, I was like, oh my gosh, like this is actually happening. But I was able to take what I already had learned during that full year of preparing into being Miss Alabama and just continuing to build upon that. Yeah, I love that, that you prepared, you put your heart into it, you went into it and said, I am going to have the most fun that I possibly can throughout this entire process. But the most important thing I think that you did was let go of the outcome. You said, whatever happens, this is going to be a wonderful experience all around. So, Tierra Pennington, it has been so much fun to talk to you today. Thank you so much for being here. Well, thank you so much for having me on. It's been an honor to get to know you just a little bit during this time. And I will definitely be following you in your journey because you continue to do amazing things and to bring all these different stories to life. So I appreciate it. Well, I thank you so much. And, you know, it really does go back to you and I had drive for our entire lives and I know I am so grateful for the time that I spent competing within the Miss Alabama system because it allows you to hone those skills and craft those skills. So young girls that are out there listening, especially young girls with um, black and brown and all the different shades of skin tones, please consider being in your local organization's competition because I know that this competition changed my life for the better, and I really don't know any woman who has competed that cannot look back and say, it may not have been perfect, but I gained so many skills, so many friends, so many connections with women that go on to do amazing things. So, all right. Thanks again, friend. Thank you. And I definitely agree with everything that you just said. So I have never met any young woman who has said, man, I wish I had never done that before. And like you said, it may not be perfect and we still have a long ways to go with trying to make sure that we find different representatives that represent a lot of different people from different backgrounds and different cultures. But like you said, it's a great way to hone in these different lifestyle skills that you continue using for the rest of your life. And we've definitely made great strides in the past few years with you know moving away from the swimsuit competition and making it way way more interview driven I mean the amount of talking in the last year's competition was intense and like you can see how how you have to learn to really control those nerves because you're speaking to national audiences on stages in front of thousands of people. So I I know we were wrapping it up, but like, give us, (laughs) give us just 30 seconds on your nerve and anxiety and stress management techniques that you use not only on stage, but everywhere. Honestly, this whole year and now going into my second year has been to just go with the flow. And Miss Nan Tenenbaum, who is the executive director, will tell you the exact same thing. We have had such a blast together because she has supported me and letting me know that 
you know, she's so glad that I'm a representative for this state and she couldn't have picked anyone better. She's so glad that I am Miss Alabama, but that we're just going to go on this ride together and you just have to believe in yourself. And so I want to thank her for always believing in me and just taking that with me to Miss America and just thinking, hey, I'm here for a reason. I can do this. You know, the judges would not have picked me if they didn't think I couldn't be here. And just to use this chance and opportunity to just go out there and let them know what I'm all about. And so that's kind of what helped me get through all the nerves because I did have to do a TED talk about my social impact, which was so powerful because I thought, wow, I think now people will really understand what psoriasis and psoriatic arthritis is all about. It's because of this moment. And so I'm so glad that I've had all these different opportunities to just grow and to be able to do things that I never would have thought I would have been able to achieve. Fantastic. Tiara Pennington, thank you so much for being on the show today. Thank you so much for having me. Hey, and before you go, they can follow you on Instagram. Is it, what's your Instagram? Okay, so they can follow me at Miss America AL. That is my official Miss Alabama Instagram. So make sure to check out all the fun stuff that will be happening this next year. The Lindsay Elmore Show is written and produced by me, Lindsay Elmore. Show segments are produced by Sue Procco and Kelsey Lorman. Production design, sound design, and editing is by Jive Media. If you have a question about this or any other episode of the podcast, send us an email to hello at lindsayelmoreshow.com. And hey, since you're still here, take a moment to subscribe, rate, and review this podcast. And while you're at it, go over and follow us on Instagram at Show. This helps us bring the pod to more people.